This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Today's COVID-19 numbers actually look pretty good. The 338 new cases end a three-day trend of increases. But to quote the health minister, the numbers seem to be bobbing around and there's no evidence of an enduring decline as the province begins to reopen. Is this a worrying trend or are higher case numbers just a function of higher test numbers. Complicating everything, surging anti-racism protests here as well as in the U.S., will that bring another wave of disease? And are we in danger from the much larger protests south of the border? Meanwhile, an interesting developing development that bolsters the lockdown strategy. Sweden's top epidemiologist has admitted that his strategy to fight COVID-19 resulted in too many deaths after persuading his country to avoid a strict lockdown. At 43 deaths per 100,000, Sweden's mortality rate is among the highest globally and far exceeds that of neighboring Denmark and Norway. Let me give you the numbers if you have comments or questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's bring in Dr. Raywat Dionandan, an epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Scientists Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Public Health at Ryerson University. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Let's uh, let good afternoon. Actually, let's yeah. uh, start with uh, Dr. Dionandan. What do you make of the numbers that you've been seeing here in Ontario over the last few days? Well, it's important to remember that daily numbers aren't what we care about. It's the trend. There's going to be some jaggedness to the curve. However, the curve does not seem to be declining anymore. And that's the result, I think, of some poor behaviors of our citizens in the last few weeks. And we're seeing that manifest in the data now. Um, You brought up the possibility that this is the result of increased testing. That might be a little bit, but that's not what we're seeing here. The testing hasn't increased so much to give that much of a change in the data. What we're seeing here is a um, a refusal and transigence of our case numbers to decline in a meaningful fashion. And, uh, okay, so we, we talked a lot about what happened in Trinity Bellwoods Park a couple of weeks ago. What other things are you referring to? Well, we also have those 700 missing cases that we heard about from April that um, weren't traced as a result, and that resulted in the seeding of our hot zone neighborhoods in Toronto and Peel and the west end of Toronto. And that's possibly what's driving some of this. But obviously, we haven't got a hold on community transmission in the hot zones of southern Ontario yet. And that's what needs to be focused on now. Most of Ontario is doing fine. It's, uh, it's certain key neighborhoods in the southern part of the province that are problematic. Dr. Sly, what's your view of this? 
Well, Doctor, uh, uh, Dr. Dan has got it spot on. What a lot of people I find are, are a bit confused with is the message at the beginning, if you remember, was flattening the curve. Do you remember that? Well, this, this, we are in the flat curve now, but that's not really a good thing. Well, what, if you had 400 cases yesterday and 400 cases today and 400 tomorrow, give or take, that curve is flattened. But don't forget, those are brand new cases every day adding to the total. What we should have been done by now is to gone down the other side of the curve where we're beginning to see maybe a couple of dozen, hopefully even single digits per day increase. That's where we should be aiming at. China did that after about uh, 82,000 cases. Uh, they brought it down to essentially zero per day. And New Zealand has done that as well. But we were nowhere near that. Okay, so we're not doing that, but we are still reopening. Now, it's true that the government has said that until they see cases decline, they're not going to the second stage, but we we are reopening. There is shopping happening. There are even socially distanced, but people are getting together outside. Is that contributing to the problem, Ray? Yeah, it is. Uh, I'm going to be, have a push here for the regional solution. I keep saying that this is largely a southern Ontario issue. I think it is. Toronto and Peel, Halton are the, are the hot zones. Places like Kingston and Sudbury and Thunder Bay haven't had an active case in several days. So it's being driven by certain behaviors and activities in these hot zone parts of, of the province. And that's associated with low socioeconomic status. I'm not blaming the people largely. A lot of this is structural. People cannot distance themselves because they live too tightly together. They cannot uh, stay home from work because their work demands they go to work. So there are some strategies that have to be put into place where we support people in their efforts to physically distance and to keep themselves safe. Okay. Uh, Dr. Sly, does this mean, for instance, uh, you know, that that people who are not in those hotspot pockets should just kind of keep going, keep doing what they're doing? Well, one of the things we, we've learned about this pandemic is, is that the reaction is not homogeneous. It's not the same for all parts of the province, all part of the country. I was talking just a couple of weeks ago to Saskatchewan, and of course they have a very, very low count. And then suddenly, uh, up at Laloche in northern Saskatchewan, a, a pristine, beautiful wilderness area almost, uh, they have one of the highest density of of, uh, of of infection, transmission rates uh, of the entire province. So it can happen. Just need one person to one of those areas. But in general, yes, uh, downtown Toronto, downtown Montreal are going to have a different set of urgency about uh, keeping the control measures going than other provinces that have a pretty pretty low rate. But you also fail to add, by the way, Libby, that uh, uh, street uh, uh, demonstrations and, and uh, riots are somewhat of a, a concern at the moment. I set your watch for about seven to ten days, and we should see the increase going up in the U.S., Canada, and the rest of the world. Well, I, I want to get to that shortly, but... Uh Dr. Dio Nandan, again, so you have uh, here the city came out with a map of the hot spots, and it is uh, spots where people uh, have a lower socio- socioeconomic status. They're closer in together. As you said, it's not their fault, but it's in the northeast and the northwest. So does this mean that people in the center who live in bigger houses with fewer people, that that, that they should be doing something? different than the people in the hotspot areas. 
No, everyone should do their best to limit transmission. Dr. Sly made a very important point. That is, when we think this thing is beat, it just arises again. It doesn't take much for a spark to become a wildfire. So if you're in a low caseload zone, you cannot uh, put your guard down because all it takes is one stray infection to get into a mass gathering and suddenly you have an epidemic again. Look at New Brunswick. Uh, one healthcare professional travels into Quebec and suddenly they have a renewed epidemic, whereas they had almost zero cases before that. This thing is insidious. The signature of this disease, it loves mass gatherings and it loves an explosive growth when you least expect it. So what we have to do is continue to invest in those tried-and-true public health endeavors like physical distancing, uh, simple personal hygiene, hand-washing, not touching your face. Try to limit your contact with people if you can. The differences in the regions have to be in how we unfold the economy, not in how individuals behave. Okay, well, let's get to that. Things have started to open up again, presumably with precautions Is it too soon, Dr. Sly? I mean, we have stores open. Uh, We have certain kinds of sports facilities open, you know, with physical distances. Is that a mistake? Well, if I was to put my robot epidemiology hat on, the unthinking, unfeeling response would be keep everybody away from everybody else. But, of course, that doesn't quite work in modern society. So, uh, clearly, as, as the lid comes off and we begin to wander blinking into the sunshine after being locked down all these times the the tendency is to is to mix and merge and go wandering through the dew laden grass and, and group hugs and barbecues and so on and we will expect cases to arrive it is inevitable there's no way of in canada at the moment we have uh, my estimate the, the most extreme case is less than two percent but i think it's less than one percent of people can be considered to be uh, protected by an, uh, an immunity having had the virus. That means that 98, 99% of people are completely susceptible, and the virus is out there and showing no signs at all of weakening. So those precautions have to be in place. Much as we don't want them and much as we want to go to barbecues and beer drinking on the back, we can't do that. We've got to be really careful from now on. And more so in the, in the areas, as we were talking about a second ago, uh, that have a higher rate. And a lot of time that higher rate, for example, I'm at home now. I'm working uh, pretty hard from my basement. I don't need to go outside. Many people don't have that luxury. The job that they are doing or were doing or the jobs that they were doing necessitate that they're, they're working there in a, in a supermarket as a cashier or they're driving a, a bus or a taxi. That's part of the, 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 uh, the rationale as well, that we're not all have the same amount of risk. Okay, uh, let's start looking at the issue of demonstrations. Uh, Ray, what's your view? We've had some here and even more, many, many more in the United States. Is there a danger of the spillover? I mean, our borders are closed. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many moving parts here, and it's tempting, as noted, to look at this solely from an epidemiological data-driven point of view, but there are economic uh, circumstances, there are social circumstances, there are liberal democratic social uh, circumstances. People are expressing their discontent with a certain set of policies in their government, which is an important thing to exercise in democracy. But epidemiologically, it's not a good sign. Um, I would fully expect in two or three weeks to see an uptick of cases resulting directly from mass gatherings. Now, that's not to say I would want protesting to stop. I think it's an important expression of democratic principle. But we have to balance 
our rights to express political discontent with our responsibilities towards public health. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just uh, asking about what the result of this might be, and there is a certain irony that uh, we know that people of color are disproportionately affected by the virus, and so uh, it's important for them to protest, but they are most likely to suffer if there's a second wave that results from this. Dr. Sly. Absolutely. Yes, um, and that means uh, the pictures we've seen, the video footage we've seen there, the people on the street, uh, police officers as well, as, as well as re- reporters too. I mean, the, as well as politicians who wade into the into the fray as well. We're all human beings, we're all vulnerable, and so it, it's going to be a, a second tragedy on top of the first one where we see a disruption that ends up with increased uh, cases, increased uh, illnesses and deaths among people who really uh, shouldn't, have, shouldn't have to suffer anymore anyway. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. We've got Darko in Etobicoke. Hello, Darko. Hello, sorry about the noise. Yeah, my question is, I mean, I heard from an expert that in Norfolk County, they said they had an outbreak of 180 new cases, but only seven are symptomatic. Now, we've never tested any other virus for people who didn't never had symptoms. So, like, we got nothing to compare it to, but, you know, I think when you see seven, nothing even hospitalized people, you know, like, so, you know, I never see them talk about, like, you know, how many people are being put in hospital, how many people are sick. That was the whole thing is stressing our medical Those system. statistics and, are run know, every day. Heard, we, we have less than 800 Dark, people with it. Darko, I can barely... fit in London Health Sciences. Okay, I, I, I can't really hear you. I don't know what you're on. Uh, well, so, I mean... I mean I'm going to let you now. go. So we can't hear you. Everything. I let him go because we can't really hear him. Um, I did hear him say that there are no statistics about how many are hospitalized, how many in ICU. Those statistics come out every day. But uh, Darko, you can call back if you get to a better connection. Um, in terms of asymptomatic, uh, Dr. Sly, I saw a statistic that said 50% of cases are asymptomatic. Is that right? Yeah, in the initial stages, we were suspecting that as many as, say, 25% of people have the virus or not. But in fact, that's grown 50, 40, 50, 60. There's one case from uh, this, the village of Vaux in Italy uh, that was showing more than 70% of the people who are, who have the virus and who are presumably spreading the virus have no symptoms at the time of testing. Now, some of those may go on to have symptoms a little later on, but some don't. And this this means that, I mean, unlike influenza, if you have influenza, people can look at you and say, I, I think you're pretty ill. I mean, you're sweating, you're achy. But not this one. It, 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 imagine how difficult it is to try and control the spread of an extremely uh, transmissible uh, respiratory virus when we don't actually know who's got it and who doesn't have it. It's a bit like groping for your keys in a dark room at night with the lights off and we don't know where they are. So testing becomes the real key here. Testing, testing. You've got to have those tests for the virus, and we also need to uh, do the follow-ups as well, the, the, the contact tracing. So the, the sense of, of uh, the asymptomatic thing is it makes this virus a real stealth pathogen, one that we hadn't bargained for, and it's causing lots of headaches. Uh, Dr. Dionandin, what's your view of the percentage of asymptomatic cases? That's absolutely right. In fact, a study out of China suggests that 80% of their community spread is due to the asymptomatic uh, carriers. And 
this, this is an asymptomatic pandemic, which is why it's such a big headache. And one of the keys, as noted, is testing, but not just any kind of testing, active, proactive screening, random screening of the population. If you don't suspect that you're infected, you're not going to come forward to be tested. So we have to go out and find you and hunt down this virus where it may not even know it exists. So uh, I'm glad to hear that the province and other provinces are rolling out proactive, random, asymptomatic screening. That's how we're going to get a handle on this thing eventually. Okay, what about this epidemiologist? There was a lot of controversy. Sweden took a very different tack than the countries around it. They didn't have a major lockdown. They avoided the the uh, problems and the, the damage to the economy. And now uh, the guy is recanting and saying that was a mistake and caused more deaths than we needed to have. Yes, that was uh, Anders Tegnell. I've been following his... Uh is a saga for quite a while. I used to live in Sweden, and I'm fascinated. They have a different approach to life, and uh, sometimes it's quite delightful. In this particular case, I think he was taking a more natural approach to allow the population to, to almost without control, try and reach a kind of a gentle herd immunity. These things are idealistic, uh, idealistically quite uh, delightful, but in fact, as I think he's beginning to find out now, that the that the cost of that is too much. Uh, the problem, of course, is the people who are very vulnerable, the aged, the uh, obese, the diabetics, the COPD people, and so on. Uh, if you just let, let society go that way, these people will, as we've seen, as we've seen very much in Canada as well, and specifically in Ontario, uh, these people suffer uh, disproportionately. So that uh, that approach is a bit late now, but he's recanting it and saying, you know, maybe we should have taken a more a more uh, controlling approach to try and lock down a little more and protect people more. Let's go to Paul in Etobicoke. Hi, Paul. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I have a question for the doctors. Um, I was watching American television a few weeks back, and it wasn't Dr. Felci. It was another doctor that deals with infectious diseases. And he stated, if everyone wore a mask when they go outside and, you know, uh, do the physical distancing, um, this virus would probably die off in a month. I'm just, and I know some countries right now have implemented policies that you're not allowed to go outside unless you have a mask on. Uh, Would you, you doctors agree that this would die out quickly if everyone wore a mask? Who, who wants to take that? I'll, I'll take that. Um, so a lot of interesting work has been done recently on modeling the effects of various non-pharmacological interventions like mask wearing and distancing on the epidemic. And this is based on our experiences with SARS and MERS and even the flu. And what we're trying to do here is reduce the transmission rate such that the, the epidemic eventually dwindles down to nothing. Every little bit helps. So if enough people stay two meters apart, that helps a lot. If enough people wash their hands regularly, that helps a lot. If enough people, like 40 to 70% of the population, wears a mask every time they go outside, that's also going to help. A mask alone does not do the job. It has to be done in partnership with these other endeavors. And then maybe, hopefully, you know, we can drive that reproduction number down so that the disease dwindles after a couple of months. It doesn't go away. It's always going to be there. And until we have a vaccine, we have to continue these public health measures. Otherwise, that second wave will manifest. But yeah, I'm 100% behind the mask wearing because the data suggests that it works. Okay, Thank Paul. You. Thank you. Okay, Paul. Uh, Tony in Brampton, you think everyone should have to wear a mask? 
Yes, I called in two months ago stating that it should be mandatory to wear a mask. Physical distancing, will you can't physical distance in a supermarket or on the bus or uh, many other places. If they made it mandatory to wear a mask, this was you drop the curve very drastically. Uh, well, we'll see if our experts agree with that. Thanks, Tony, for that. Uh, Dr. Sly, should it be mandatory and would it make a difference? Canada has always been reluctant to uh, suggest the use of something like a mask. And the rationale, I think, goes that the mask is certainly not 100%. Well, we know it's not. It never was intended to be. Uh, but is that reason to uh, stop the, the, the transmission of the percentage that it can stop in the same way that the thermography, you know, the, uh, the temperature reading of somebody's forehead, the skin, that's not 100% either. Good work done at Imperial College in London showed that we miss about half of the virus positive cases on that. Uh, and the same with all of the testing and the distancing. None of it is 100%. But if you begin to layer them up, begin to layer one over another, you begin to get a pretty good capture rate. You begin to get, you begin to get a net that's really beginning to work on the virus. Uh, and so, yes, the countries that you will notice have done an exceptionally good job, such as Korea, other than its single super spreader events, as, uh, Singapore in its early days, Hong Kong and, and Taiwan being the, the poster child of this whole process, they insist that their citizens in the street wear a mask. For this same reason, and and for the, what was mentioned a little earlier on, that my mask protects you and your mask protects me, that, that kind of process. So th- that's 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 really what the message is all about. Okay, Joanne in Toronto. Hello, Joanne. Hi. Uh, excuse me. I just wanted to ask um, whether uh, the doctors whether they think it would be advisable for me, as a seventy-six-year-old. Um, asymptomatic person who's in reasonably good health should go to one of the centers and get a test. I live at home with my husband who's 79 and he has at least three underlying conditions including asthma, COPD, diabetes, and uh, second degree AV block and uh, hypertension. Now he's also asymptomatic, but I'm just wondering would it be a good idea for me to go and have a test anyway or, or not? Who wants to take that? I guess I'll take a shot at it. It's a difficult question because you have to ask yourself, what's the purpose of the test in your situation? Uh, On the one hand, let's say you do test positive. What does that mean? You have to isolate yourself and not come into contact with your husband. But you already have infected him probably because you're already infected. So it doesn't accomplish a whole lot. I will say, though, that um, the more people who get tested the more information we have and the more we can control the disease at population level. So I'm never going to discourage someone from seeking testing because that feeds our data pipeline and that's good for us. Um, There's a small risk, a very small risk of going to a testing center and exposing yourself to other people who are in line there, who probably are in line for a reason because they suspect that they're infected. But if you maintain your distance and, you know, wear a mask and do those proper things, your risk is quite low. If, If it makes sense to you to know whether or not you are infected, then go for it. But remember, the the treatment is going to be the same as your quarantine. So you can quarantine yourself right now and assume you have it. I understand that. Okay, well, thank you very much. Actually, uh, everything you said makes perfect sense, and it's sort of what I've been thinking myself. So uh, I'll I'll think about it a bit more and then make my decision. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joanne. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting question. 
and uh, another thing is, I think that when people get tested, they are told to go home and self-isolate until they get the result. Yes, this this concept of testing is is rather concerning, and I think um, I think you see in the in the very beginning we were limited on Ontario apparently through the lack of test kits. Then we were limited by the having the kits but not having the reagents. Then the official word was uh, uh, if you have symptoms that are on our list, so two or three of these symptoms, then come and get tested. Then it was down to just mild symptoms, and finally. With just the last week or so, a suggestion that anybody can come and be tested. My my question is, where's the strategy in that? Where's this common sense in that? In fact, we should be looking far more at at systemized or 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 randomized uh, surveys of the population after we've looked at the number one. For example, people in old folks' homes, long term care homes, everybody months ago should have been tested from the CEO down to the gardener. No question. And that testing should really be repeated about every week. We know the serial time. That's the time from the time that you become infected until the time that you infect somebody else. It's about three to four days. It's less than the incubation period. So for these key people with a, a public interface, whether that's an air, air flight attendant, a taxi driver, everybody in hospitals, and these people need to be tested for the virus and repeated about every week or 10 days. That's how we get a handle on this, not to allow the curious to come and maybe have a test if they're, if they're interested, because a lot of people just won't show up. There's no, no strategy, no planning. That's, that's my criticism. Okay, that's that's interesting. I know the premier said that he wanted to have people in higher risk professions tested, but there's no evidence that that's how it's unfolding. Ray, I wanted to ask you about this whole business. We had the missed uh, those missed tests about the the you know different public health units and the communication and the administration. Is is that a big part of the problem? It's a huge part of the problem. As someone who deals with data all the time, Ontario has a very bad grasp on how to communicate its public health information to its specialists and to its decision makers. Other provinces do it a bit better. So as you've all heard by now, in some places we're communicating via fax machine in 2020, 1990s technology being used to communicate information relevant to a deadly disease in real time today. We have situations where we don't know who's responsible for reporting that case of 700 missing uh, cases in April. That was a result of two hospitals being unsure which one is responsible for reporting cases to uh, the central authority. So I'm, I'm saying all the time that the phase of the epidemic that we're in now, we've moved from the phase where the, the doctors deal with the thrush of patients at the front door to the epidemiologists doing modeling to now where managers have to make decisions about how to make the system more efficient. And that's a good thing because it means we know what to do, spend some money and, do, and spend some resources and hire some right people. It's a bad thing because we're not doing a good job at it. So uh, if you hear the frustration in my voice, that's why. Okay, uh, we're starting to run out of time. I'm going to take one more call very quickly. Peter in Newmarket. Peter, you work at a golf course. What's what's your question? Yes, um, we had a situation at the golf course, uh, which will remain unnamed, of course. Uh, a young lad, uh, his father uh, was put into hospital with uh, COVID-19 symptoms, 
And uh, on occasion, this young fellow used the same golf cart that I did. And I couldn't remember if I had come in contact with him uh, during the uh, uh, period that was mentioned. So I immediately went uh, to South Lake Hospital and got tested. I agree that uh, anybody should take the time to go and get tested. And uh, that would give true numbers that uh, could be reported. Uh, that's my comment. And uh, uh, my mine came back ne negative, thank goodness. But uh, um, I, I thought it was the right thing to do, just to be sure. Okay, well, it sounds like it was, Peter. Uh, thanks for your call. And as I said, we're running out of time. Uh, so 20 seconds each, starting with Dr. Sly. What would you like to leave us with? Okay, last last point was really good, uh, but an immediate test for virus may be a bit of a false negative. It's, it hasn't a chance to colonize anything yet. So to be really sure, another test another week further down would be would be better. Okay, and uh, Dr. Dionandon? My last comment is always the same. This is a partnership between decision makers, scientists, and the public, and the public has to do their part, act responsibly, follow public health guidelines. Okay. Thank you both so much, Dr. Timothy Sly and Dr. Ray Dionandon. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Libby. Thank you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.